Awesome. Hey, well, we're so glad that you're joining us uh, here this Christmas season. We know December is generally a pretty busy month. Uh, in the era of COVID, it seems like a lot of things have, have, have slowed down a little bit, but we're glad uh, to see you, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Thanks so much for being a part of uh, this church community. We really believe God is doing some incredible things uh, in the Northwest, and uh, I've had the privilege uh, in my life of, of, of ministering in a lot of different churches, in a lot of different nations, in a lot of different places, and I know I'm a little biased because I'm one of the pastors here, but I can tell you what God is doing at the pursuit is significant and it's unique. I just It was even exemplified just during worship this morning. Friend, you don't get that everywhere. You don't get that everywhere. We could have just, I could have just closed the service after worship, sent everybody home. You already been to the throne room. You already been in. You don't get that everywhere. You get a lot of Christian karaoke. You get a lot of 10 minutes of uninspired worship. You got a lot of non-excellent musicians. But at Pursuit, you got people taking you to the throne room. You don't get that everywhere. And God is doing something unique here. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you. I'm just telling you, it's not, it's not about us, it's about, it's about him. To God be all the glory. But, but I'm saying, as we have added our faith together, you're beginning to see the tide is rising here in the Northwest. And so we get to be a part of it. It's exciting. And uh, you and I both are, are together on this, on this journey, lifelong of development, of transformation. And uh, honestly, especially during COVID, I mean, this is kind of true just regardless, but especially during COVID, honestly, Sundays are the highlight of my week. Everything else is closed. The restaurants are closed. The theaters are closed. The gyms are closed. Not that I go anyways, but everything is closed. But the church is open. And so uh, anyways, thanks for joining us. I know we got friends really from around the world joining us online as well. We hear testimony after testimony of people being impacted by the power and presence of God, even on the online campus. It's incredible. And uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I know there's a lot of reason to, to, to wring your hands or to worry or be in distress about the state of the world. But I'm telling you, when I'm at church, I have hope for tomorrow because I'm seeing a good God do his best work and he always saves the best for last. And so some people say, well, pastor, is 2020 the end? I go, it might be, but here's the good news. God saves his best for last. And so if this is the last days or the last season that we're in, I've got really good news. God brings out his best wine in the last hours. And so uh, you and I are in the right place. We're worshiping the right God. Uh, we're, we're serving the right Jesus. And together we're going to keep our eyes on the prize, the author and the finisher of our faith. And so God's got it handled. He's already seen your tomorrow. He's already seen the outcome of things that worry you. Some trust in chariots, others in horses, some in politicians. We will put our trust in the name of the Lord. And so that is our commitment as believers. Uh, and, uh, and, and I hope you'll join me in a reminder this morning. Remind your soul that your faith is not in the things that you can see, but in the things that you can't see. The unseen God who's done a work by his spirit in your life is worthy of all praise, all honor, and all adoration. And, and, and I'm glad, I'm glad this morning to be uh, in the house of the Lord. I'm going to make a personal announcement this, this morning. I, I don't usually do those, but I want to fill you in because I know so many of you have been praying for me and supporting me and asking me how I'm doing. I've been in a, in a multi-year PhD program through Northwest University, and, and I found out just last Thursday that I have successfully completed all my comp exams, and I'm officially a PhD candidate at Northwest. So I'm, I'm a little excited. 
Now, somebody said, well, does that mean you're a doctor? I said, no, not yet. I'm a candidate. Now the real work begins, the work of a dissertation. Uh, and so uh, I'm going to be writing. Somebody says, what are you doing in your free time? I said, what's that? And so uh, we're writing, and, and, uh, but I, I've got a lot of help uh, from people who are a lot smarter than I in this church who are helping me gather my thoughts. And uh, I'm just... I'm just excited. I'm fortunate. I'm the luckiest guy uh, in the room. I don't deserve to be where I'm at. And that kind of is the common thing about all of us. We don't deserve to be where we're at, but the grace, mercy, and favor of Jesus has made a difference in our lives. I'm just thankful to have a seat at the table. People ask me, what's it like to lead the pursuit? I said, I'm just lucky to have a seat at the table. And I never want to lose that idea that we're just thankful and grateful to be a part of the team. Regardless of what you call me, whether I'm, I'm the coach or maybe I'm playing shortstop or maybe I'm in the outfield or up to bat. I'm just lucky to be on the team. You and I together were a part of what God is doing in the Northwest. And I sincerely believe, I know I say this a lot, but I sincerely believe in a hundred years, people will write stories about the awakening that we're going to see in this region. It is bigger than a city. I love what God is doing in Snohomish, but it is bigger than a city. We planted this church in Snohomish to prove that God has a sense of humor. It's bigger than this city. It's God is awakening a region here in the Northwest. He is raising up for himself a remnant people in the last days who will know his power and will see his ways. We're not just planting another church or having another nice sermon or having another couple sit down, stand up songs, and everybody's going to go home the same. We are here to hope an encounter with the Almighty, and when we call on His name, this God answers by fire. This is what we're into. That's why we're launching a third service. People say, well, now, you know, we're in the third service, and at the parking lot, and everybody's always <laughs> worried, complaining, having an issue with, oh, we're making room for what God's doing here. <laughs> and just pray, man, I love to go back to one service, but you know what we need in order to go back to one service? A bigger building. So why don't you just add your faith to mine? Let's prophesy in the next property for pursuit. Let's prophesy in the next gathering place. Why? Because it takes facilities to facilitate the thing of God. You know, sometimes people try to sound real spiritual. Well, if the church really loved people, they would spend money on buildings. How stupid is that? That's not in Scripture. That's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. When we love people, we create room for people. And so we, we've established this as a wineskin. And now we're feeling like we're growing out of it. We're going to add a service. It's going to be more complicated, but we're making more room for the things of God. And I'm just confident that he's got things that we haven't even tapped into. He's got resource that we haven't even dared ourselves to believe is there. He has got things hidden in places that the Bible says it's, 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 it's a king who hides things, but it's righteous men who search them out. And I believe God is hidden things for us all across this region. We're going to walk into a favor. We're going to walk into a resource that people are going to have to stand back and say, this could only be God. And that's the way that he loves to do things, not by our power, not by our might, but by his spirit alone. I'm going to talk a little bit this morning on the concept of, of, of idolatry. We see it first appear in the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments that God gives Moses written on stone tablets. And one of those commandments is that thou shalt have no other gods, lowercase g, gods before me. I think sometimes in our world today, some of those commandments don't really translate because we don't think of ourselves as an ancient civilization worshiping foreign idols. But the reality is, is that we have as many gods today who compete for our worship, our time, and our affection as they have ever had in any culture in any part of the world. 
Our gods look a little different. They sound a little different. Sometimes we dress them up in all sorts of benevolent ways, but they are gods nonetheless. And any time you misplace your hope in something that is a lesser version than who God really is, then you're practicing in an idolatry that God has come to root out of our lives. I think we ought to be careful in our world today, especially in our political moment that we're in today. Listen, let me say something. Don't, don't get offended. Just take, take off your offense hat for a minute. Just hear my heart. Long after Trump is done being president, Jesus will still be king. And if you attach a messianic hope to a political figure, all you will set yourself up for is massive disappointment. It doesn't mean that you don't have a responsibility to vote. It doesn't mean that you can't proudly wave the flag of the person that you voted for. But I feel like some of what we're seeing in our world today is people, Christians, attaching messianic hope to things that are less than the Messiah. My hope don't come from the White House. My peace doesn't come from the White House. My stability doesn't come from the White House. My resource doesn't come from the White House. It comes from on high, the one who owns all the cattle on all the hills. And some of us have over-invested our hope in constructs that are fading away. For the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of our King. Everything that you see right now around you is in a lifelong translated experience, meaning this, everything that you see right now is already in process of being translated out of darkness and into light. Every kingdom that you think is so permanent, the Bible says that God sets up and he tears down in an instant. God promotes and he pushes in an instant. He exalts the lowly and puts low the exalted in an instant. So this God that we worship is not tied to a, a political platform. Now, you know I used to work in government. I used to work in politics. I'm fine with voting. I vote. I advocate for different things. I, there's certain things that I hold very, very dear to my heart that I know are very similar to a lot of the values that people in this room have. But we ought to be careful. We ought to be careful in this moment that we don't make the same mistake that we have criticized other people of making in regards to other political candidates. Because the problem becomes we find ourselves in a subtle form of idolatry. And here's what I would mention to you today. Idols would be easy to resist if they announced themselves as idols. Sin would be easier to resist if it announces itself as sin. But oftentimes it doesn't. It announces itself as allegiance. It announces itself as preference. It announces itself as opinion. It announces itself as proclivity. Sometimes it even dresses up in things that look biblical or scriptural, but really lack the integrity of what it looks like to follow Christ. So just be careful in the season of Advent that you don't pledge your allegiance to Herod and miss out on Jesus. Just... And come back next Sunday, too. We, uh, I want to see you. Anyway, sorry, I'm done. I'm done with that. Go back to posting on Facebook, okay? So anyways, 1 Kings 18. 1 Kings tells us the story. Yeah, let me stop there. Yeah, let me hit it one more time. You know, it's funny. Anytime we do Christmas here at the church, 
Every once in a while, I get emails. People say, I can't believe you're celebrating Santa or the Christmas, the winter solstice. Everything's demonic. Every we got a demon nutcracker on stage. We got a pagan tree, pagan gifts. Y'all turn into Jehovah's Witnesses overnight, you know? Just can't celebrate anything. Everything's evil. Everything's demonic. You know, I just go, listen, our battle is not against Santa and elves, <laughs> but against principalities and powers. So just take a step back, you know? And just take a step back off the reactive edge. Not everything a demon, not everything's going to, you know, we, we, we've developed such this over-empowered enemy in our life. That, 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 that everything that, you know, is around us, we just ascribe all of these demonic powers and entities to. It's just Santa. It's going to be okay. You know, we're going to do pictures with Santa on Christmas Eve. Why? Because families like to have pictures with Santa. We're not making a winter agreement with the winter solstice demon. We're just taking pictures with Santa. But just, you know... We're going to be okay. But, you know, I always get these emails. And I just got, you know, it's like, well, I can't believe you would ever do it. Blah, 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 you know. But we allow the things of the world to steal our joy. I'm telling you, Santa is not a principality in power. Suicide is. Depression is. Mental illness is. So if I can put a smile on somebody's face by getting them a picture with Santa, you better believe I'm going to do it. <laughs> and so just, I think we just need to sometimes just, we take ourselves too seriously. We pledge our allegiance to all these lesser things. We, we, we swallow camels and then we strain at gnats. And so we get, ah, I saw a nutcracker. I can't come back. You got two electric guitars. I can't come back. You're just looking for a reason to leave. Just looking for, well, I don't like the lights. I don't like the sound. I don't like the smoke. I don't, I mean, it's just, you know, we have so exalted our own preferences that it has become the idol that we've worshiped. And so for me, my heart is to say, hey, let's build a church that kind of offends everybody equally. So if I ever say something, I'm going to rub you the wrong way. Just, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And because we all, that's kind of what we're all committed to. We're all committed to being offended equally because that's part of the, the transformative process in our lives. If growth was easy, everybody would do it. And most people don't. First Kings 18. Elijah, I come back. You got to come back next week. We're launching a third service, actually. So please, invite your friends. Tell, them, tell, tell your family. Come to pursue. Bless God. Bless God. Here's the thing. You know, I think, honestly, people are attracted to authentic transparency. You know, we dressed up the gospel presentation, all this pomp and circumstance is so weird. Pastors can't even be real people. You know, you put on a sweatshirt. Somebody says, where's your suit and tie? We, we have so dressed up religion. And then we put it on an altar, and then we wonder why we're so perpetually disappointed. And I just go, let's just create an environment where we don't take ourselves so seriously. We take the presence of God really seriously, and then we lay down our preferences for the sake of something higher than us, like spiritual unity. Because when there's unity, God commands a blessing. And so, you know, for us, let's be, let's be the church. And not everything you call church is church. It's when we assemble. It's when we gather. You know, people say, well, you know what, you don't have to, you know, the, the government's not saying that you can't, you know, worship. People can worship in their homes. That's fine. Well, I, you can worship anywhere. You worship in the bathroom. You worship on your way to work. You can work. You worship in your house. But scripture says that there's something that happens when the saints of God assemble for the purpose of praise. And so it's not just worship. It's the assembly. Is there a scriptural reason to assemble? You better believe it. You better believe it. Just open your Bible. You'll see it. You'll be okay. First Kings 18. I really go preach now. Sorry. I apologize. First Kings 18. Elijah was a prophet. 
Some of you remember this story from Sunday school. You saw a flannel graph, Elijah, fire coming down, kind of this Old Testament, just, just wizard of an individual who operated with supernatural power. You know what I love about the story of Elijah? I love what the brother of Jesus, James, says in James 5. And Elijah was a man with a nature like us. <laughs> Which means this, what I read about the lives of heroes and giants in Scripture is not because somehow they were made a little higher to God than you or I. No, but because they tapped into simple faith and simple obedience that shook nations. Elijah was a man with a nature like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain in Israel for three years and six months, and God shut up the heavens. And then he prayed that it would rain, and a cloud the size of a man's hand appeared in the horizon, and it rained. So for us, when we think about the gospel, it is good news because it has power. And if we just reduce Christianity to a better argument, to a somehow slightly spiritually improved epistemology, that we have done a disservice to what the gospel is predicated upon, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the same spirit that raised Jesus now dwells in us and gives us strength. I'll tell you what, man, we need prophets. We need prophets and prophetesses. We need apostles. We need bishops, evangelists, teachers, pastors. We need people to come into their function, come into their giftedness, come into their identity, and together become part of the chorus of spiritual voices and energy in this place in order to bring heaven to earth in a way that reflects the totality of what is on God's heart. If we just build a church around Russell's ability to preach or Mike's ability to lead worship or our ability to host a small group, we are doing stuff in part but not in whole. But if together we each function with the idea that we've got a gift to bring, a part to play, an identity to adopt, then all of a sudden we come into the fullness of the maturity of God's saints. In fact, that's the purpose of fivefold ministry that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4. The idea that together we would come into fullness. And there's more for you and there's more for me. I hope you believe that today. If you get one thing out of this sermon, I hope you get this. There is more for me. Elijah was a prophet who God used to call the nation back to righteousness. Elijah was a prophet somewhere between 900 and 800 B.C. He was a prophet in the nation of Israel during the time in which Israel had a king named Ahab. Now, Ahab didn't start out wicked, but he started out dumb. And because his dumb never turned to smart, it turned into wickedness. It turned into wickedness because he married somebody he shouldn't. Because how can two walk together unless they agree? Listen, friend, it better to be single than to wish you were single. Amen. Ahab was looking for a little side piece, a little wifey. He found one. You know what her name was? Jezebel. You know where she came from? The Syrophoenician land of Tyre and Sidon. You know who her dad was? A high priest under the false god Baal. You know who she was? A priestess in the service of the god Baal. But because Ahab had a lonely problem, an isolated problem, I'm not complete without a this type of person in my life problem, he married below his destiny and corrupted a nation. He got Jezebel living in his camp. 
And what does Jezebel do? She tears down the altars of Yahweh and builds up the high places of Baal and another false god named Asherah. And so Elijah, bringing judgment against Ahab's wickedness, declares over Israel that it will not reign for three years and six months. You know why Elijah makes this judgment on that nation? Because the false god Baal that, we worship, that they worshipped, he was the god of weather. And Elijah is confronting the spirit of the age. He's saying the God that you worship does not control what you think he controls. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who has formed the heavens and the earth, now will shut up the heavens for three and a half years. And 1 Kings 18 is this dramatic encounter, this exchange between Elijah the prophet and Ahab the king. Ahab is mad that it hasn't rained for three and a half years. In a society that is largely agricultural, you can imagine how devastating it would be to the economy of a nation for there to be no rain for three and a half years. Ahab is trying to kill Elijah. Elijah is running away from Ahab. And finally they meet on Mount Carmel, in which I have stood. And they had this kind of prophetic standoff by which Elijah dares the prophets of Baal to get their God to answer by fire. And Elijah sets up a, a contest of sorts. Whatever God will respond with fire will become the God that we worship in this nation. And that's where this story picks up in 1 Kings chapter 18. The Bible says this, Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is your God, then follow him. But the people said nothing. And Elijah said to him, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. And I will prepare the other bowl and put it on wood, but not set fire to it. And you call on the name of your lesser God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Friend, watch. This is the pattern of history. God will bless a nation who honors him and judge a nation who worships idols. Our idols look differently today. They look like consumerism, misplaced hope, busyness, technology, politics. But nonetheless, they compete for our time and affection. Now watch. Although our idolatry looks different, it is no less dangerous. See, it's a discipline to live a life in which you remain singularly focused on Christ. Sometimes that discipline can make you feel isolated. Here's what I love. Watch what Elijah says. I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left. Scripture is recording the interior narrative of Elijah. But what Elijah says here is not true. If you back up in 1 Kings 18, what you find is Obadiah one of the Old Testament prophets. And he says to Elijah, I have hid a hundred prophets in the caves of Jerusalem. Elijah is confronting Ahab. He tells Ahab, I'm the only one left, or I feel as if I am the only one left. Now there's a hundred left in the land, which certainly isn't a lot, but there isn't just one. But here's what I love. By the time you continue to read the story and you get to 1 Kings 19, 
Elijah's depressed, hiding in a cave himself, wishing the Lord would just take him home. The Lord speaks to him, rebukes his emotional state, gives him food, and then says this to Elijah, I have 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. Watch. We went from one to a hundred to 7,000. It reminds me of this quote from Billy Graham, Courage is Contagious. When a brave person takes a stand, the spines of others are often strengthened. Yeah, I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten in the last season from other pastors and other leaders in this region, some of whom I have never met before, who say things like this, Pastor, I just wanted to thank you for taking a stand. It has given us courage to do the right thing. When people of courage find the energy to take a stand, it releases a spirit of courage upon the region. It's important what we do here, not just for this house, but for other houses. Now watch what happens. Elijah felt alone, but he wasn't alone. I'm aware today that you may be here as the only one serving God in your family. Can I tell you, friend, it's worth it to follow Jesus. You may feel like I'm in an ocean surrounded by people who mock me, disbelieve me, think I'm inauthentic, only remember the former version of who I am. Man, it would just be so much easier to go with the flow. And you know what? You're right. It would be. But God didn't call you to what's easy. He called you to what's worth it. And it's worth it to follow Jesus. And some of you are going to be surrounded by family in this holiday season, and they're from every other persuasion except the one that you stand on. And I'm here to tell you after you've done everything to stand, God's going to give you the courage to continue to stand because you never know the impact that you have on somebody else's destiny until you reach heaven. There will be people who find themselves in eternity with Christ because you took a stand when you thought nobody else was looking because even the things that was done in secret, God says that he'll shout from the rooftops. Friend, your witness means something in this season. I know it feels like, man, it'd just be easier to shut down, shut up, backslide. In my sobriety, go back to my former way of living. It would just be so much easier. But what if there's a family in your children's children lineage that's going to benefit because you were faithful when other people weren't? What if there's 7,000 prophets waiting to stand up and get off their knees because there's one Elijah who's willing to take a stand? What if today you represent a nation that you don't even know about? When God's people are faithful, it echoes in eternity. Let me read you a true story. There's a man by the name of Dr. Perenju Job. He was an international evangelist, often referred to as the Billy Graham of India. He passed away in 2012, but before he died, he told the story of how one of the most famous Christian songs made its way from India around the world. The story goes like this. About 120 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales, England. And as a result of this, many missionaries came from England to northeast India to spread the gospel. That region in India was known as Assam, and it comprised hundreds of tribes. The tribal communities were quite primitive and aggressive. 
The tribesmen were referred to as headhunters because of a social custom which required the male members of the community to collect as many heads of their enemies as possible. And into this hostile and aggressive community came a group of Welsh missionaries spreading the message of love, peace, and the hope of Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One Welsh missionary finally succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and his two children in a small tribe. The man's faith proved contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity, but angry, the village chief summoned all the villagers. He then called for the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. And moved by the Holy Spirit in his Indian dialect, the father sung his reply, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. Enraged at the refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to shoot the two children. And as both boys lay dying on the floor, the chief asked again, will you deny your faith? The man replied again, singing in his Indian dialect, Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. The chief was beside himself with fury, ordered his wife to also be shot by archers. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asked for the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man sung his final verse, The cross before me. The world behind me, no turning back. He was shot dead like the rest of his family. But with their deaths, a miracle took place. The chief who had ordered the killings was moved by the faith of the man. He wondered why would this man, his wife, and his two children die for a prophet who lived in a faraway land on another continent some 2,000 years ago? There must be some supernatural power behind this family. I too want that power. And in a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus Christ. And when the crowd heard this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. And today in that same region, there are over 1.25 million Indian Christians now serving Christ. That revival in Wales was led by a 26-year-old man named Evan Roberts. He got a hold of a core conviction from the Lord and ended up in Bible college for two whole months. After two months, decided to return home, and he asked his his pastor if he could preach a sermon. The pastor was a little shy and a, a little standoffish and Evan Roberts is just passionate. He's only been at Bible school for two months, and certainly this can't be the Lord, but if he really wants to preach, I'll I'll let him preach on a Monday night after the Bible study is over, where there is the least amount of crowd, and he can do the least amount of damage. (laughs) I've preached some of those sermons. (laughs) And Evan Roberts stood behind that pulpit, and he preached. He talked about this core conviction, this idea that if we would build an altar, the fire of God would fall. And until 5 a.m., people travailed in weeping and worship and prayer. And what was launched from that little country church 
was a missions movement that changed the face of the world. And I think about what we're doing here. And we are the reflection of a missions movement that began 2,000 years ago in an upper room in the Middle East where people gathered, 120 of them, not that many, with the core conviction that if we'll build an altar, the fire will fall. And it launched a missions move to the uttermost parts of the earth. And today you and I stand in the obedience of people who stood in the place of prayer and travailing and weeping, building an altar, trusting that if they would build the altar, the God of Elijah would come with fire. Friend, I haven't built a church. I've built an altar. And as the altar has formed, the church has grown. There are a lot of churches today that don't have altars. But everywhere you find an altar, you'll find a wineskin to hold the wine. Well, I'm not talking about a physical altar, although we have one. The altars are where we call people forward to worship. The altar is where we call people forward to give. The altar is where we call people forward to receive. We're an altar-centric church, but, but I'm not talking about altar in a physical sense, but friend, in a spiritual sense. That idea that in your life you recentralize your existence around the idea that Jesus is king and there are none other before him and there are no idols that ever even come close and there is nothing of value like the precious stone of who Christ is. Oh, he's the most beautiful thing we've ever found. In fact, we've sold everything we've had to buy the field in which he is. This Jesus this valuable treasure, this one in whom we have built in our lives and who our entire existence is, is attached to like some sort of gravitational force that we spin around, this Jesus deserves this type of altar by which we find ourselves in daily, weekly, monthly, and yearly sacrifice coming to the Lord in prayer, petition, and worship because he's worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise. Long before we ever had this building, we had an altar. We had it at our last building, 126 Cedar, an old, tiny, historic church in this community. We had it before that in a rented four-square church up the road. Even before that, we had it in a barn right off of Highway 9. Even before Highway 9, we had it in a little house, in a living room in Snohomish. Oh, the church has grown, it's transformed, it's changed. We're reaching thousands of people a weekend, online, in person. God's doing incredible things. But there has one thing that's remained the same. It's the altar that we built in. If you follow the story in 1 Kings 18, you'll see exactly... What Elijah did. The Bible says, so they took the bowl given them and prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. And they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. I want you to see something. False idols always require your blood. But we enter into right relationship with Jesus because of the blood of the Father's precious Son. Now watch what happens. 
Midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for their evening sacrifice, but there was no response, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. They came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Watch, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones, he built the altar in the name of the Lord. Then the fire of the Lord fell and it burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil, it even licked up the water in the trench and all the people saw this and, and they fell prostrate and they cried, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Seems like today we've got sails without wind, jars without oil, clouds without rain, wineskins without wine, churches without altars. But when you begin to rebuild, it attracts the attention of heaven. The Old Testament asks this prophetic question, what can the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? Friend, they can rebuild the altars. What we're doing in the Northwest is not a new thing, it's an old thing. But we're doing an old thing in a new way. And what we're doing, I believe spiritually, is we're picking up the fragmented altar. And we're repairing it in such a way that it attracts the fire and the attention of heaven. We're picking up the spiritual pieces that giants have left behind. We're picking up the stones that people have forgotten about. We're, 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 we're unlocking the wells that have been filled up with dirt from the Philistines. We are gathering the spiritual inheritance that's been dropped or forgotten about by God's people. And we're gathering it in this place. And we're daring ourselves to believe that if together we will grab our fragmented stones, God will respond with fire. Now watch what Elijah does in 1 Kings 18. He calls the people. He tells them. He said, come near to me. I love this. The whole nation has turned out to see this prophetic demonstration of power. They're interested to see which God will respond by fire. The Bible says in 1 Kings 18, Elijah says, come near to me. And as they come near to him, the Bible says Elijah takes 12 stones, one for each tribe of the nation of Israel, and he repairs and rebuilds the altar of God. See, some of us have got it backwards. We ask for increase, but we haven't first repaired the altar. We ask for more of God, but we first haven't aligned the stones. We ask for God to give resource and increase and do all these sorts of things in our lives, but he's asking us to get first things first. Friend, if you want the fire, you've got to arrange the altar because God always responds to sacrifice. And what we have wanted in Western Christianity is costless faith. And it's produced powerless living. When you join yourself to a community, you say, hey, I'm a part of this, Pastor. Now, I don't have it all together. I might not be able to be here every Sunday, but I'm a part of this thing. This is my tribe. This is my family. It's where I serve. It's where I give. It's where I contribute. What you're doing is you're taking your stone and you're putting it on this altar. See, something we don't understand in the West is the significance of names. 
In our culture, we just name people after whatever. Sometimes it's a family name. Other times it's a Bible name. But, but our names don't have the same significance in our culture that they did in this culture. And I want you to see something this morning. As Elijah is gathering the stones, 12 of them, one for each tribe, he is telling the nation of Israel a story. And Fred, if you want to rebuild your altar, you've got to retell God's story. Now watch this. The tribe of Judah, this time I will praise the Lord. The tribe of Reuben, because the Lord has seen my affliction. The tribe of Gad, how fortunate. The tribe of Asher, happy am I, and so on. With mighty wrestlings I have prevailed. God has made me forget my trouble. The Lord has given me this son. I will become joined to him. God has given me my reward. He's endowed me with a good gift. He will dwell with me. He has taken away my reproach. And the son of sorrows has now become the son at his right hand. Each of those 12 tribes told a story that when combined in an altar pointed to the Messiah. Messiah. And if we want to rebuild our altar, we got to retell our story. The story of God's faithfulness in the land of the living. The story, the story of how many times God has bought you back, purchased you back, redeemed your life, rebuked the devourer. How many times God has been faithful. How many times you were faithless, but God showed up still because he said his love is a seal upon your life. And what I've found is that as the church gathers to tell its story, it's like all of the stones are coming together. And at first you don't know what we're building. And at first you only want more answers. And at first you're kind of still confused. And, and what's happening? I, I just feel like I found a cool little neighborhood church and the pastor is young and he's kind of excited. And I'm just going to kind of show up and do my part. But what you don't understand is that you've been sent here on purpose, with purpose, to help me build this altar. Some of you have been sent here with incredible resource. You're going to help me build this altar. Some of you have been sent here with an incredible gift of helps and administration. You're going to help me build this altar. Some of you have been sent here, you can prophesy the paint off the walls. You're going to help me build this altar. Some of you have been sent here as apostles, going to help ground this theologically. You're here to help me build this altar. Some of you are serving in kids ministry. You're going to help me build this altar. Some of you are cleaning the church. You're going to help me build this altar. And when we value the stone that God has given us and the part that he's asked us to play, God responds with fire. This is the God of Elijah. I know some of you are here today from another spot. Some of you are here today, you haven't been to church in months. Some of you are watching online because a friend shared the broadcast. I challenge you today, don't be an observer, be a participant. God has brought you here with a resource. Now add your stone to this altar. When you add your stone to the altar, you go from catching the fire to stoking the fire. That's the message we've missed in the revival movement. It's all been what you catch. It hasn't been about what you build. I don't want you to catch this. I want you to build this. Because when you build it, you have a home where the fire rests. So instead of depending on what I receive for your life, you can receive out of what God has for your life. And together, 
together, together. things I like to do, about the only thing left to do with everything shut down is drive around and sometimes I pull up to different big commercial construction sites. I just pull up, I'll sit outside, I'll roll down my window, drink a Starbucks. I just listen to the sounds of the building. It does something in my heart. I hear the masons, the bricklayers, the steel beams, the stick frame, the plumbing going in, the roof going on, the hammers, the wrenches, the nails. I just listen, and it does something in my heart. And it reminds me that the great carpenter of heaven is still building his church in this region. But he builds it with living stones. You and I, where are you, Judah? We need the worshipers. Where are you, Levi? We need the priests. Where are you, Gad? Where are you, tribes? Where are you out of every nation, every tongue, every tribe? Come help build your altar. Where are you on the left side of the spectrum politically? Where are you on the right side of the spectrum politically? Where are you, rich and poor and black and white and old and young and excited and not so excited? Where are you? Let's build an altar in the Northwest. That's my pitch to you. Let's build an altar in the Northwest. Such a way that it attracts the fire of heaven. And in 120 years, they write about a young preacher who sparked a missions movement in the Northwest. That's what I offer you the fire of God on the altar of God. Come on, stand to your feet. Man, I'm turned up this morning. Let's build. Let's build. It's time to build again. Let's build. Let's possess cities that aren't ours. Let's reap a harvest of crops we didn't plant. It's time to build. Come on with every head bowed, every eye closed. You say, Pastor, I'm in here today. I'm in here today. I've decided I'm going to be a builder. I'm not going to be a watcher. I'm not just going to be an opinion giver. I'm going to be a builder. I got a rock. I got a stone. I got something that represents the tribe that I'm from. But I'm going to be a builder. I want to build with you. I want to link arms with you. I don't just want a church. I want an altar. Come on, friend, if that's you in this place, would you just raise your hand? It's a sign of faith. A sign of belief. A sign of confession. God, I'm here to build. And come hell or high water, I'm adding my stone to the altar. Come on, we're going to sing this out. We're going to end this with a song of declaration, of dedication, of consecration. If you need prayer in this place, we got altar team on my right and on my left. They'd love to lay hands on you and pray. The rest of you, you're free to leave when you must or, or, or join us for a little while with song and worship. 
But let's end this service today in a time of consecration unto a holy God. I've decided I'm not going to watch. I'm going to participate. I'm going to lay my brick.